As a bit of a history buff, I have all sorts of different parts of history that I like. Some of them are from a long time ago, and so I'm, I'm stuck with looking at books and articles and things like that. Others of them are things that have happened more recently. One of the things that I really like to, to hear about and to read about is the space race during the Cold War between Russia and the United States. During this time period, the United States and Russia not actually really fighting. They were having a, a faux war fought by proxies, but there was also fought on the technological front. And so we were both racing, the United States and the Soviet Union, to try to do the next big thing. First it was faster than sound travel, and then it was who was going to get into space first, and then it was who was going to go to the moon, and so on. And that space race has led to not only some phenomenal books, but some phenomenal movies as well. Uh, One of my favorites being Apollo 13, how they were able to survive millions of miles, thousands or millions of miles from Earth with less computing power than our phones have is phenomenal to me. And it's the ingenuity. It's the closest thing that we have in our lifetime to those explorers who jumped on boats and said, well, we're just going to sail that way and hope we run into something. Um, We did the same thing when it came to the space race. Sadly, it's kind of over, the space race, at least when it comes to trying to outdo Russia. But there's a new one, and it really has to do with billionaire uh, investors who have now decided that they're going to do what they can to get people to space. And even in the last few weeks, we've seen different billionaires send their people up into space. So it wouldn't be hard to imagine that in the next, say, 50 years, I'm not a prophet or a son of a prophet, but in the next 50 years, it wouldn't be unimaginable that we would have some billionaire decide that us humans have screwed up Earth and he was going to start over again. I could see that. You know, you could see a billionaire saying, we've messed up Earth, it's time for Earth 2.0, and luckily for you all, I have the money, so we're going to ship you off to this new planet and restart the the human race, restart Earth, Earth 2.0. So my question would be is, uh, who would that billionaire take with him? Sadly, I think all of us would be in the stands watching the billionaire's parade of who he would take with him. Of course, the billionaire would be right in the front in his gold-plated limousine, standing out the, the skylight, sky, the, the sunroof, waving and saying, yes, I will be in charge. You can trust me. Behind him, you'd see the Nobel laureates with their Nobel prizes, their medals. Behind them, you would see the, the, those, those giants of Wall Street, those founders of corporations, when you see their stacks of money and all of their accolades. Behind that, you might see a few kings and queens carrying their scepters of royalty because, you know, we need royalty on our new planet. Then you'd probably see some athletes with their medals and their trophies because we definitely need some physical specimens to increase the the, the physicalness of our people on this new planet. But we also need some entertainment, so you're going to need to send the best musicians along with their platinum records and their their awards, probably their instruments as well. We also need some actors with their Oscars and their Emmys. And then behind that, we're going to need some beautiful people, and we're going to need some, some witty people, and we're going to need some intelligent people and influential and maybe some wealthy people. 
And you and I, as we are sitting in the stands and watching this go by, we longingly go, well, if only I was one of them. If only I could be in that group. Because this group is our hope. It's our future. We have to get the best and the brightest out there on earth 2.0 if we are going to ever survive. Now that's one way of looking at it. Jesus gave us a slightly different way. Well, not slightly. Completely different way of looking at it. And he starts it right here in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' introduction to the Sermon on the Mount is the Beatitudes. These Beatitudes, which simply is the Latin term for blessed, are a list of people who are going to inherit the kingdom. It's a list of six blessings. On either side of these blessings, you have the very first one, which says that blessed are the poor in spirit, so they'll inherit the kingdom of earth. And then today's passage, 5.10, blessed are those who persecuted, so they'll inherit the kingdom of heaven. And in between, we see these, these blessings. And so just to kind of review, we see that the first group we'll look at is the pure shall see God. We have those who are blessed that they can see God. We have those who have been shown mercy. We have those who are a part of God's family, verse 9, called sons of God. We have those who have mourned and are experiencing comfort. We have co-owners of the earth, verse 5. And then in verse 6, like we looked at last week, we have those who are satisfied because they are hungering and thirsting after Christ's righteousness. So today, as we, we finish out this Beatitudes, Jesus has already taken us in a different direction. All of these, these blesseds are not who we would put at the top of our list. And then we get to the eighth one, and it's not the thing we want to be blessed with. We don't want to be blessed with persecution. I, I, not it. I don't want that. But yet, what it says here is, if you're hunger and thirsting for righteousness, this is going to be the result, part of the result of thirsting after righteousness and having that satisfied by the Lord in your life is that there is going to be persecution. So here's our big picture. Rejoice, for the more we pursue Christ's righteousness, the more the world will pursue our destruction. The more we pursue Christ and his righteousness, the more the world will pursue our destruction. But notice the first word there is rejoice, as in feel joy, as in excited gladness, exceeding gladness that this is happening. And you may go, that doesn't make any sense. Exactly. And Jesus is going to tell us why it makes the perfect sense. So we've got some questions we're going to have to answer if we're going to understand this. First thing we've got to know is we've got to understand what is persecution. What is persecution? Because a lot of us have ideas of persecution that are not what Jesus is talking about here. Now, technically, under the big umbrella of the word persecution, that's, that's what that word means, but we want to look at it and look at it from Jesus' perspective. The next question we have to answer is what is righteousness? We'll get into that. Third question we have to answer is, why is there so little persecution in America today? Then we have to look at, what does it mean to be commanded to rejoice? And then finally, why does Jesus start his longest sermon this way? What's it all mean? So we're going to tie it all together. So we're going to answer these questions, and thankfully these questions are answered right in the text. So look with me at verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Notice this is the first beatitude where it's not we're doing something. Instead, it's somebody's doing something to us. It is not us saying, hey, this is what you need to be like. It's instead saying, this is what's coming your way. This is the only beatitude that actually has a double blessing. Verse 10 has a third person blessing. And then verse 11 has that second person blessing where both are right there. Jesus wants us to really get what he's hammering home here. So it starts right off. Blessed are those who are persecuted. So our first question is, what is persecution? Well, when we look at the Greek word here, the Greek word means to be pursued, to chase. It's from the root word to harass. This is not going up and poking the bear. This is not going up and smacking the beehive and then being surprised that you're being chased by the bear or the mad bees. Instead, this is you going a direction and something starts chasing you and starts harassing you and starts going after you. My wife has this incredible ability to attract yellow jackets. I don't know exactly how it happens, but we've had plenty of times where we've gone on hikes and they are harassing her. They're flying around her. And of course, she greets them with the nice hello of, ah! And it sounds like she's being murdered in the forest as we're hiking out in the middle of the Mount Hood Forest. That's what we're talking about here. You haven't done anything, but yet they're coming after you. One author says the the definition of persecution is hostility experienced by Christians striving to live like Jesus and proclaim his gospel. So it's this, I am living like Jesus and I'm proclaiming his gospel and there is hostility towards me. Persecution like this is not foreign to the church. The early church experienced this. What's interesting is the early church got this beatitude. Because what does it say in Acts 5.41? They were persecuted and locked in jail and they went, yippee, awesome. We are just like Jesus. We're getting persecuted for the truth. And they greeted it with joy. And then we see the early church, obviously, we have Stephen, and we, we continue, and, and all of the apostles, save the apostle John, are martyred for their faith. Not that they didn't try. Remember, they dipped John in boiling oil, and he didn't die. He just got burned everywhere. At that point, you'd want to die. And then the, the, the church, as it continues, and what we see throughout is the Christians are being burned at the stake, and they're saying, denounce this Jesus, and they sing louder. And so they try to make more noise to block out the Christians, and the Christians sing louder. Why? Because they're experiencing the joy of the persecution. And we'll explain what that looks like. Eventually, the the persecution moves from state persecution to, unfortunately, some Christians persecuting Christians to where we are today. In the first 10 years of the 2000s, one million Christians were killed for their faith. So from 2000 to 2010, 1 million Christians. In the last 10 years, nearly 2 million Christians have been killed for their faith. This is something that the Bible says we need to be ready for. We need to be thinking about. 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life will experience persecution. So what does this persecution look like? Because we have this idea of either a coming persecution or we have just things that don't fit the way we like and we like to think of it as persecution. The key thing here is that the persecution is based on who we are following and how we are following him. So it's the righteousness and it's the person that we're following. It's Christ that we're following. 
Obviously, the very overt attacks, people's bodies being whipped, people's bodies being destroyed, being put to death, those are obvious persecution. There's other forms of persecution as well. The most common is ostracizing. This is where you push someone out of a community, whether it be via the government, whether it be via the city, whether it be via employment or the community as a whole. It's the not able to do things. And you'll see this in places in the world where if you're not a member of the the religion that's that country's religion, you're not allowed in society. International Society of Human Rights estimates that 80% of the world's hostility towards religion is towards Christians in over 139 countries. And that's that's not us. We don't experience that. So the first thing I want you to get about this is we've got to make sure we understand that this persecution is the blessing. Notice what it says here. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Not blessed who are those who are not persecuted. It's not blessed are those who flee persecution. Blessed are those who do everything they can to not be persecuted. It says blessed are those in the midst of the persecution. We are not to enjoy persecution. We're also not to pro, you know, go out and provoke it. Instead, we're to pursue Christ. And if persecution comes, that's the persecution he blesses. See, many times people are persecuted. Again, I'm using that word again. That's not the way Jesus used it. They're persecuted for being stupid. They're persecuted for being jerks. They're persecuted for your idiosyncrasies or, or pushing a cause instead of righteousness. Remember, verse 6 says, you are to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Verse 10 says, righteousness is what they're persecuting you for. And who is the picture of righteousness? It's Christ. Verse 11, on his account we are persecuted. See, John Stott gets, gets this right. He said this persecution is two irreconcilable worldviews colliding. They cannot coexist. So persecution is being persecuted for being like Christ and for following Christ. That's it. That's the persecution that's blessed. Everything else out there that we label persecution is not what Jesus is talking about here. So what is this righteousness? Let's, let's dig into this a little bit. Righteousness just simply means justice. It means uprightness. It means being like our Lord Jesus Christ. It's being like Christ. So when we live out this righteousness, this is what the persecution's in response to. This persecution is in response to a way of living that is foreign to the rest of the world. It looks like the exact opposite. It looks like them saying, what do you think you're doing? You're doing the worst thing possible when we're trying to do the best. The billionaire going, we need the strongest and the most fit. And we would say, no, no, let's put some weak people on there. They would go, you're trying to destroy us. And so they reject that. Persecution is not looking for a fight. Persecution is not being objectionable. It's not a hot take on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter. It's not being difficult. It's not being obstinate. It's not being overzealous. It's not because of our politics or who we voted for or our stance on vaccines. It's for following Christ and looking like Christ. It's not for being good. There are going to be people that are going to be persecuted for doing things that we agree with. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about following after Christ. See, here's the thing. 
if somebody who's not a believer can be persecuted that way, it's not the persecution that Jesus is talking about. This persecution is limited solely to those who are following after Jesus. I mean, you can imagine in an environment, let's say we had an environment that was 100% one religion, and there was another religion not named Christianity, and those people are persecuted, that's not what Jesus is talking about. He's not saying in this majority Hindu nation that this group of Muslims over here is experiencing persecution that he blesses. That's the entire wrong way to get it. It's not a Christian nation that persecutes the atheists. Those atheists are not getting the blessing that's here. What he's saying is this blessing, this blessed persecution that I'm talking about is 100% because you are following me and you look like me. That's what this persecution is. See, Jesus is, is not, uh, this, this is not where we expect these beatitudes to go. Right? We talked about how we went up on the mountain and it was this hunger and thirst for righteousness and then we've got these needs being met and then he hits us right in the gut with, you're going to be persecuted. But again, we need to pay attention because Jesus says this throughout. Here's another example. John 15. Jesus just, again, lays this right out. He says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the, the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. So Jesus makes it very plain that the persecution that he's felt is the same persecution that we are going to feel. This world retaliates. It pushes hard against what Christ is and how he lives. One author writes, righteous behavior provokes persecution because the unrighteous world cannot stand Christ's righteousness. Those who hated Jesus the most fiercely were the Pharisees because they had a public pretense of righteousness. Nothing exposes the counterfeit faster than the authentic. And so this, this righteousness exposes to them what they are doing and they cannot stand it. They persecute it because they hate the light. They hate that we do not fear death. They hate that we love the light. They hate the one that we point to. So when we're pointing to Christ, when we're living like Christ, or we're saying, hey, hey, look over here. This is Jesus. Isn't he beautiful? The world hates that. And when they fight back against that, that's the persecution that's mentioned here. I don't think we've seen this any more clearly than in our world right now. The abject fear of death in our world. I mean, our part of the country is so fearful of death. And they're trying to do everything they can to stop it. Now, if we come along and we say, well, you shouldn't fear death because here's a percentage. Or you shouldn't fear death because this study. We might get pushback. We might get persecuted. That's not what this is talking about here. What this is talking about is if we say, yeah, be scared. Because Jesus died for your sins. You can go to heaven or you can go to hell. There's damnation or glorification. Which one's it going to be? That is the thing that leads to persecution, and that's what he's talking about here. See the change there? The change is not focusing on my cause or my idea or my thing. Instead, it's focusing on the one who owns me, my master, Jesus Christ. And sometimes it's going to be how I live my life, and I'm not going to partake of the things the world's going to partake of. And when I do that, the world goes, what's wrong with you? 
What's wrong with you? I still remember in college, I went to a party. I was not a drinker. I, I grew up Southern Baptist, so like that's the worst sin on the planet. But I went to a party and there was drinking and I was like, no, no, I'm fine. And literally the people at the party could not handle that I was not drinking. Not that I think drinking's a sin. Getting drunk is a sin according to God's word. But I wasn't going to partake of it because I didn't trust me. And so I never did. But the people at the party, they worked overtime. I had to watch my cup because they wanted to put stuff in it. Because in their minds, me not drinking was saying what they were doing was wrong. And they couldn't handle it. That's the way the world looks at the actions that we pursue. Think about the one who exemplifies these beatitudes. Who is the perfect picture of it? It was Christ. And they nailed him to a cross. That's the picture we have here. We are, to be, we are persecuted for being like Jesus. We're persecuted for pointing to Jesus. One author reminds us that they hated Jesus. The effect that the world always has towards Jesus is to hate him. They pick up stones. They say, let's crucify him. We'll take a murderer over him. If we're following Christ, the world is not going to be our fans. They are not going to stand by and say, yeah, you follow Jesus. Let's go. They're going to say, what is wrong with you? As a matter of fact, you're doing the opposite of making things better. You're making them worse. Let's get rid of them. And that's the persecution that Christ is talking about. Do we think that these eight Beatitudes are about harmony and peace with our neighbor? No, it, it's, it's about pointing us to the truth and preparing us for the fact that sometimes that peace that we are trying to pursue in our seventh Beatitude is not going to happen because they don't want to see their sin. I like this quote. If you find yourself persecuted for Christ and for righteousness' sake, you have a sense of the final proof that you are in fact a Christian, that you are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Remember, the first, per first Christians were persecuted by authorities and hearing them thanking God as they were seen to suffer for the, name, for the namesake, for Christ's namesake. See, this is where we're to be. Not only is it are we to prepare for this persecution, but that persecution is also meant to be an encouragement to us because it means we're doing what we're supposed to. Again, persecuted for Christ's name, persecuted for living like Christ. Those are the two that we're talking about. Verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Notice the word there, falsely. All right? This, this, this is important because what it's saying is it's not that you did something to deserve it that was evil. Instead, they're saying what you're doing is evil. So get this. If you are standing for the truth and you're standing for what's right, but you do it in a jerky manner, if you do it in a confrontational manner, if you do it in a manner that is put down, it's that, <laughs> you're so stupid. Did you know Jesus? All right, that is not what we're talking about here because that's not false. The falseness is that you're doing it in the right manner. You're doing it with the right motives, and those right motives are being called evil. They're doing the upside down. They're looking at us evil instead of looking at us as righteous. So that falsely is important because it's saying you are walking in the truth, you're speaking the truth in the way that you should say the truth, and then they're calling it evil. That's what we're talking about here. Verse 12, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
I love this, that verse, verses 11 and 12 are an expansion of verse 10. I think there's maybe two reasons for this. One, like a Puritan said, that this is so important, Jesus repeats himself. That's probably it. He's probably right. But at the same time, I also think verse 10 would have left us a little confused. So he expounds on it to say, and by persecution, I mean, here it is. So we see here, it says to revile. That's a great word. It means to taunt or denounce or to to abuse. The word persecute here means to be cruel towards. And then evil means slanderous or cruel. And again, some of these are just words. Other times it'll be actions. And then notice what he says. He says, on my account. So he says in verse 11, he says, you're going to be persecuted on my account. Verse 10, he says, you're going to be persecuted for righteousness. Jesus uses himself and righteousness interchangeably because he is the picture of righteousness. When we follow him, we are acting righteously. When we're acting righteously, we're following him. It's, it, they go together. So what does this look like? Why are, they, why are they resisting us? Well, I found this list, and I think it's a pretty solid list. If you cherish moral purity, your life, so this is our actions, your life will be, attack, be an attack on unbridled sex in that person's life. If you embrace temperance, which means not drinking to drunkenness, your life will be a statement against the love of alcohol. If you pursue self-control, you will indict excessive eating. If you live simply and happily, you will show the folly of luxury. If you walk humbly with your God, you will expose the evil of pride. If you are punctual and thorough in your dealings, you will lay open the inferiority of laziness and negligence. If you speak with compassion, you'll throw callousness into sharp relief. If you are earnest, you will make the flippant look flippant, not clever. If you are spiritually minded, you will expose the worldly mindedness of all those around you. See, our lives, when we live that righteous life that looks like Christ, we should not be surprised that people react to us like they did to Jesus. We have this in our minds that Jesus just kind of walked around and it was this big, long farewell tour and all these crowds and everybody was loving him. No, there were multiple times that they tried to kill him and they succeeded the last time. And that, that's the picture we have to have of what it's going to be like to follow Christ. Because there's three principles we see here. The first one is that the Christian is not like the non-Christian. There is a chasm between the two. There is a chasm between the two. It's a clear-cut division. So different. Jesus said, you must become a new man. Not a half man, not a partial man, but a completely new man. There is a divide between us and the non-Christian world. And the reason we have that is our second point, is that Christian's life is controlled and dominated by Jesus. We have no room for the things the world says are important because Jesus fills it all up. We are to be loyal to him. We are to be concerned what he's concerned about. And that's it. There's no room for anything else. And then finally, a Christian's life should be totally controlled by thoughts of heaven and the world to come. What this means is we're not focused on the here and now. So much of our world is about let's you know eat and drink and be merry because tomorrow we die. 
And so they're trying to grab as much as they can. As a matter of fact, some of those billionaires that are trying to get to space, you know what else they're trying to do? They're trying to beam their brains into computers so they can live forever because they recognize no matter whether you're the, you know, the first trillionaire in the world or whatever, you're going to die someday. And if I can't beam my brain into there, I don't know who's going to get my money and what's going to happen and so on. As a Christian, we should be controlled by our thoughts of heaven. Because that then changes how we look at this earth and the world to come. So, we've got the persecution, we've got the righteousness. I've laid it out pretty clearly to you. So why don't we see this kind of persecution in America today? You say, well, wait, 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 but you know, they're, 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 break, they're cutting down on our rights and they're, they're doing things like that. Yes, that's a form of persecution, but I'm talking about the persecution that is blessed by God, which is looking like Jesus or pointing to Jesus, why are Christians not being persecuted for that here in America? We could say, well, it's our laws. You guys have seen some laws apply and some laws don't, if you haven't been paying attention this year. It's not our laws. As much as I love our Constitution and I love our form of government, it's not that. There's a reason why Christians are not being persecuted in America. I think the first reason could be that we aren't around non-Christians. We're like, well, wait, I work with non-Christians. I see them all the time. Yes, but when you're at work, there's all sorts of HR rules. You can't talk about Jesus, right? And many times you can't even talk about your life. And, and now, honestly, most of us are remote. We're not even in break rooms and lunch rooms anymore. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is who do you hang out with? Who are you around? If your friend group is 100% or even in the 70s or higher of Christians only, No wonder there's no persecution. No wonder there's no pushback. Remember, persecution doesn't mean they're killing you. But it does mean that you're ostracized, that you're out of the in-group. So maybe the first reason why is because we don't have enough Christian friends. And this one speaks to me. Because I used to teach at a Christian school and everybody was Christian. And all the people I hung out with were church people. And people from my family who were, praise the Lord, mostly all Christian. And there was not pushback. And I realized I don't know very many non-Christians. And that's a scary place to be in because the end of the book of Matthew is to go out and make disciples. Not to hang out with the disciples. To go out and make disciples. To go into the dark places where there are no Christians. So that's the first reason. The second reason, and this one is a little bit probably more difficult than that one, is we don't look any different from the world. We laugh at all the same things. We watch all the same things. We listen to all the same things. We eat all the same things. We act about the same things. And we don't stick out. So if you have, you're like, oh, Pastor John, I got lots of non-Christian friends. Do you look any different to them? Is there that persecution? Is there that pushback of, why are you doing it that way? You have to have a relationship. But if your relationship with Jesus isn't there, you're just going to look like a friend that's a little different. They spend their Sundays a little different than you do. So these are, the, these are the reasons why we don't have persecution. One author said, the church must be persecuted or it is no church at all. We must stick out from the world. If we follow Christ, there is a price. It will be costly because grace is not cheap. It is not plain. It is costly and of immense value. Church father Tertullian was talking to a man, and, and this man, had a, his business and his Christianity were, 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 were button heads. He couldn't be a Christian and keep doing his business. So he asked for advice, and he said to Tertullian, what can I do? I must live. 
I must make a living. And Tertullian said, you must? Really? Because I think it's, I think you need to have loyalty to Christ first and foremost, and he takes care of the living part. See, we, we, we so many times we go, well, but if I, if I act this way, then this person's going to get upset. And we do this little balancing in our mind where it's like, well, I'm still a Christian and I really believe it, but do I look any different? Ah, not so much. So I'll leave that there for you because that's not the point of this sermon. But think about that. Why is it that I'm not being persecuted? Why is it that there's not pushback in my life? The next thing we're going to ask is, why are we commanded to rejoice? That's a weird phrase there. And you're going, well, I don't see the command. Well, the, the word rejoice means to be happy, and the word right after it is be glad. This means exceeding gladness. In the Greek, these are commands. It says, be this. You will be happy. Be joyful. Right? This command is to go do this. Feel this way. And again, just like we've seen throughout these Beatitudes, this is not a grit your teeth and try harder. It's the Lord is promising you that you are going to have these. You need to let him do this work in you. When we change it from avoiding persecution and avoiding trouble to now I am blessed when this persecution happens, rejoice. Now he could just tell us rejoice. He's God. He can do what he wants. But he gives us a reason to rejoice. And he says, your reward your reward. Literally, that word means wages. And this is where we struggle a little bit. Because when we think about reward, we go back to that, oh, you know, it's like mercenary. They're paying me off. And I, I don't really want to work for something. And I kind of go back and forth. But here's the problem with that. The Bible is very clear. You're going to get a reward. And it's okay to think about it. It's okay to go, I'm going to be rewarded for this. My, my motivation is that Christ be made, remember we've talked about this entire time, Christ be made great. Point to Christ. And when the persecution comes, go, this is not the end of my life. There's a reward coming. And we're allowed to do that. The Lord tells us, you have a reward. Look to that reward. There's a mystery here. You know, this idea of agony and joy and gladness and misery all going on at the same time and this miracle of faith comes in and says trust in the lord you have a reward so what's this reward what am i getting out of the deal well verse 10 tells us it says theirs is the kingdom of heaven jesus starts with this and he finishes with this well what does that mean that's a big churchy you know sermon on the mount word well the author of hebrews tells us Author of Hebrews in Hebrews 11, this is what he said. After the, 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 the statements of all these believers, all these people that are in heaven, he says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged them, they were strangers and exiles on earth. They didn't fit on earth because their home was in heaven. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. See, this, we, we don't earn this reward. This reward is thrown in. It's part of the package deal. It's like, it's like he goes, I'm, I'm going to save you, and you're going to have eternal life. Oh, and on top of that, you're going to have reward in heaven. You're going to inherit the kingdom of heaven. And what that looks like is going to be beyond all your imagination. This is not 
a grin and bear it, keep calm and move on. Instead, this is a tight glimpse into the joy that we're going to be experiencing for eternity. I love that. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So the encouragements here that I see are, one, we are now citizens of this kingdom. We are not citizens of the earthly kingdom. No matter what this world does to us, our citizenship is not going away. Our inheritance is there. We need to remember, and this is the second encouragement, he's saying the reward in heaven. Jesus is saying no matter all the persecution that you experience on this earth, no matter all the good things, if you were to bottle that all up and put it in one jar, the first second of your time in heaven is going to override that and be greater than all the great things, and it's going to work backwards and make all the bad things that much sweeter in heaven. And that's the first second, folks. It's going to only get better from there. And that's our inheritance. And that's the encouragement. That's how people can stand at the stake and smell their burning hair and their flesh. And the fire is tearing through their limbs. And they can sing praise songs with all their might, louder than we do. They can do that because they've glimpsed that. They recognize when they step into heaven, that first second's going to be greater than all the great, and it's going to work backwards and make all the bad great. That's where we're going. And that's how he can say, if you're insulted, if you're persecuted, if you're lied about, jump for joy. Because it's setting up what heaven's going to be like, and it's going to be that much greater. So we are commanded to rejoice. There's some reasons why we can rejoice. First of all, is that our identity with Christ is on display. Second of all, Christ, when we're persecuted, it's a way of perfecting us. It's a way of bringing us into a closer relationship with him. Third, the persecution allows us to feel the, the, the radiance of the Christian life. Think about Stephen. Remember when, when he's there and he's just speaking off the cuff and he's telling the Pharisees and the Sadducees what for and he's telling them their own history and he finishes with Jesus and he looks up there and Stephen is radiant because he's seeing Christ and they want to kill him. That radiance is what we experience when we're suffering through these persecutions. Fourth, we have the promise of reward. We've talked about that already. And then thir- uh, fifth, my, son's, my little son's favorite section of the Bible. Jesus is near to those who are persecuted. Daniel in the lion's den. Who's the fourth person? Who is it? Not Daniel in the lion's den. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Sorry. He likes both of those. My bad. But think about that. They're in the fiery furnace, and who is that fourth one? It's Christ. So Christ says, when you're persecuted, I draw near to you. Isn't that great? So we need not fear persecution. We need not seek it out. But when it comes, we see it for what it is. It's not God abandoning us. It's God drawing near to us. It's Him drawing near to us and blessing us. And that leads to joy. Because we need to find our joy in Christ. There's no room for fear there. So what does this all mean? Why are the Beatitudes here at the beginning of this sermon? Why does Jesus start with this introduction? You know, I mean, if you go to a preaching class, it should start with a story or something funny to soften up the audience. Jesus just goes right into it. Why does he go here? I mean, if you think about it, if we were to sit down and I was to say, okay, let's, let's think of eight ways to change our lives for the better. And you guys were to start writing those down. You'd have things like, my life would be a lot better if I got more sleep. Maybe if I lost some weight. Maybe if I didn't check my phone 
all the time. Maybe if the Blazers actually won a title. Maybe, you know, whatever that may be. And we look at those eight things and we would go, you know, those eight things are a lot like what the world would probably want. Christ's eight things are to let us know this is a new world. This is a new kingdom. This is not the kingdom you would expect. And he's going to continue this throughout the Sermon on the Mount. And so we'll be returning to these Beatitudes and this otherworldliness throughout the Sermon on the Mount because it frames where he's going. Because ultimately, these Beatitudes are about Jesus. Now watch this. Jesus was poor in spirit. What does it say? He made himself nothing. Jesus mourned. He's called the man of sorrows. Jesus was meek. Later on in Matthew, it says he's gentle and lowly of heart. Jesus hungered for righteousness as a son of righteousness. Jesus was merciful. He's called our merciful high priest. Jesus was pure in heart because he's called the holy one, and that means completely holy, meaning pure. Jesus was a peacemaker. He's called the prince of peace. And then lastly, Jesus was persecuted because he was the suffering servant. When we look to these Beatitudes, we see Jesus. When we look to these Beatitudes, we see what we are becoming in Jesus. We see who we are going to be like. Blessed, happy, and delighted. So we are, as we finish here, we're to focus on heaven. We're to desire Christ and where Christ is more than everything of this world. We're to treasure him over this world. We're to treasure his righteousness. Yes, there will be times where, where the rejoicing will be hard. We will have tears on this earth. But what does Paul say? Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Jesus was able to face down the cross, but he did it for the joy set before him, even though it was the most excruciating thing you could imagine. So our hearts are for he- primarily on heaven. Our hopes are primarily in heaven. Our longings are primarily in heaven. And our joy is primarily in in heaven. Thinking that way is the way Christ wants us to think. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was uh, martyred during World War II because of his uh, Christianity, but also because of his resistance to the Nazi regime. And this is what he says in writing about the Beatitudes. He says, with every Beatitude, the gulf is widened between the disciples and the people. Their call to come forth from the people becomes increasingly manifest. There's that separation See, in God's kingdom, lasts become divine firsts. There's no one who's beyond the kingdom in Christ's kingdom, this new kingdom. So we return to our parade. We saw the kingdom of space, the, the, the earth's last hope for these billionaire. Now we're sitting in the stands and we see a banner come out and it says, kingdom of heaven. In the front of the parade, We see the humble who can't lift their faces up but can only say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And they have nothing in their hands. Then we see those who have eyes that are red from crying and mourning over the sinfulness in the world and they're contributing to it. Their hands are also empty. The next group, limping on crutches, on wheelchairs, carried by their friends. We see those who are meek, who have waged a lifelong battle to be holy. We see those who have extended mercy to those who are marginalized and overlooked. We see those whose hearts and hands have remained pure despite the world's attempt to pollute them. 
We see those who brought peace to conflict. We see those who stood strong though they were beaten and hated and left out of society. We see that this parade has every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And we notice every single one has nothing in their hands. And then we get to see the most amazing thing. The leader, who's not in the front like the billionaire in his gold-plated limousine. Instead, we see someone in the back who looks despised and rejected. There is nothing that would draw us to him. We see him. He is a servant. He is humble. He's riding on a donkey. There is blood on his hands, blood on his feet, blood on his head. And the world begins laughing. The world begins jeering. And the people I'm sitting around in the audience are yelling, whoa, that's ridiculous. That's your leader? And as I watch, as he passes in front of me, I see all of a sudden he changes. And he goes from the lowly, despised, hated man to a warrior king on a white horse with a crown and with angel armies around him. And here's the best part of it all. He looks at me and he says, follow me. We go from the crowd. We go from the audience to being a part of the parade. And this is the picture of who's in Christ's parade. This is the picture of who's going to his kingdom. And I pray that each and every one of you would join me and join your fellow believers in entering into that kingdom. It's as simple as doing what Jesus said. Follow me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this invitation that, Lord, we can follow you. We, we do it not in our own strength. We do it in your strength. We do it in response to your calling. Lord, we, we cannot do anything to earn this salvation. We have nothing in our hands. Like the song says, Lord, nothing in my hands I bring, but simply to your cross I cling. Even better, Lord, I just want to cling to you. So I pray, Lord, that if we are not there, I pray that we would get there through your Spirit moving in us. If we are there and we're clinging to you, but maybe our eyes are looking elsewhere, maybe we're longing to be a part of that, that world, I pray that you would get our eyes back on you. Help us to focus back on you. And Lord, I pray that you would just manifest in us all of these traits that you've listed here in the Beatitudes. Help us to be more like your son. In Jesus' name, amen.